1: Dance with the devil in the pale of the light. I always ask out of all my brain. I just like the sound. Of it. Podcast like it's 1989. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1989. It's 1989. Baby fish mouth.
0: Baby fish mouth. Hello and welcome to podcast Like It's 1989, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1989 from FN 108, last on your dial, but first in your hearts here in 2022. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Felisco. And with us again, back, (laughs) Aaron, Rashawn, Thomas, thank you so much for coming back to talk about do the right thing
2: thanks for having me guys Uh, always a joy to be here and excited to talk about this one
0: well we had a we had kind of a mini spike conversation when we had you on for the best man we did and uh the feeling was you might have some more thoughts about spike (laughs) i don't know but (laughs) um but yeah we uh we're so happy to have you back
3: i also gotta say too you know uh this, this will probably not come as a surprise to any of our listeners. We do, we record some of these episodes out of order. And this is officially our last 1989 recording. And I'm thrilled that this is the last 1989 recording. Like, it, I, you know, I own the criterion of this film. I've seen this film, you know, several times. Um, but it's just, it's it, it's such a powerful movie. And despite the fact that, you know, Kenny and I did our rankings of our favorite films of 1989 you know, so, some more kind of lighter fare, if you will, that might sort of, you know, exist in our childhood, your Indiana Joneses, your Batmans, movies that obviously are, are beloved and, and obviously sort of have a big imprint on us. I think this is probably the best film of 1989. I mean, I I think that this movie is just sort of watching it again it's just it's lightning in a bottle in so many ways it's got it crackles in a way that so few films do um but i want to rewind a little bit aaron and ask i just
0: want to say real fast yeah this is the best film of the 80s
3: there's like (laughs) yeah there's
0: no question in my mind it's the best film of the 80s and the only reason that it wasn't on everyone's it wasn't everyone's number one in 1989 when people made their best of the 80s is because of the the anti recency bias that always happens at those decade year end lists, sure. but uh, I think if you look back now, uh, most people uh, with taste would have it as the best film of the eighties, which it is. It's it's undoubtedly the best film of the eighties. I think it's. I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. It's one of the three or four best American films of the last fifty years. I think it's uh, more than basically any movie. Uh, Gave us the visual language of the films of the '90s and uh, the films of the 2000s. Um, Obviously, presages so much that happened in our culture. I think if you, you know, we've we've done so little to kind of change the the systematic and fundamental things that have gone on. That obviously were being discussed in the black community at the time, but I don't think the white community or other communities in New York really, you know, gave much thought to. But just stylistically, in yeah. every single line of dialogue, every sonic decision, every shot is is perfect. I think it's a fucking perfect film. So that's yeah. my feeling. On
3: this but story. I was I, I I I fully fully agree. Um, what I wanted to ask you, Erin, was did you see this in the theater in eighty nine? Because I didn't see this film until many years later. I was nine in nineteen eighty nine. So it, no know. excuse, Phil. No <laughs> excuse. We should have wrote it. <laughs> But I'm curious as to if you saw it, then what it felt like in the moment.
2: Um, well, I can say this: I I was I was too young to see it as well. You know, okay. At time. I what I remember my experience in in 1989 with it was that I remember it was the first time I really discussed Spike Lee like in depth. Mm-hmm. Like I remember actively hearing and and talking about spike i was a kid myself at the time a little bit older than nine but not much not much (laughs) but i remember speaking for the first time having conversations with friends about this director spike lee out of brooklyn and you know this film in particular my experience with it was about a year later when i actually was able to watch it on vhs at the time sure um in a vcr and so my I, I was aware of the film before I watched it and I was aware somewhat of the, the touch points that that it discussed before I watched it. What mm-hmm. we were discussing even as a child, you know, um, some of the incidents that were going down at the time, you know, when you're talking about, you know, a lot of the, the, the violence, the Howard Beach incident was something I was really familiar with, even though I grew up in the Midwest. You know, where did I, you grow up Aaron? I grew up in Kansas City, in the, okay. the middle of the country. Um, but we are familiar with, uh, with some of the touchpoint incidents. We were familiar with, in bo- on both coasts, by the way. So Howard Beach, you know, in New York, we were familiar with um, Yvonne Smallwood. We were, we were familiar with, like, uh, Arthur Miller, we'd heard about. And that happened, I think, in the 70s. But we were also familiar with, like, Tasha Harlands on the West Coast, you know. And there were things like that that were happening even where I was from. It's just if they weren't in L.A. or New York you just didn't hear about them, you didn't get, they didn't get the press yeah. coverage in the same way. So that I was familiar with. And I was and we were familiar with the fact that there was a film that actually had the audacity to like name these people that were victims that, you know, it wasn't just the New York Post or the New York Times that, that had them as headlines. It was like, wait, it's a black filmmaker who's actually like uttering their names with any kind of vigor.
3: I mean, Who dedicates the film to them, to the, yeah. to the yeah, to six victims, to the families of six victims at the end of the film, yeah.
2: Now I feel like it's kind of, you know, it's common language, if you will. TV shows do it, films do it, dedicated yeah. to, you know, whoever, you know, you see George Floyd, you'll see Black Lives Matter all over the place. But at that time, for me, the impact, even before I watched the film, was the fact that someone is actually putting it out there, like mm-hmm. taking things that are normally kind of hushed and talked in quiet tones and actually using a bullhorn to say like, no, you know, this is, this is actually going down and I'm going to use my art to actually kind of like bring this. River. Um, so I, that's a long answer to, to say that by the time I watched it, yeah. there was a big buildup, you know, I, there was hype, if you will. And so when, when I watched it, um, it was kind of. It was just. I, I can't really like overstate how impactful it was as far as just the fact that it existed. You know, just the mm-hmm. fact that it was coming from Spike, that he was being so audacious in what he was saying, that it was not wrapped up in a neat package where these things happen and this is how we solve these things. It's like no, it was very messy. Everyone has kind of dual layers, if you will. Mm-hmm from the very opening frame of the film before you even you know get images the music itself is telling you this is going to be about duality its yep. violence and nonviolence and you see characters that you like one minute and the next minute they're being cruel you know and like human beings are like all of that complexity and just the fact that he's taking a really complex set of themes if you will um, and putting that on film I just want to say just the fact that that was accomplished, period, was a big yeah. deal when I watched it. And the fact that it was accomplished, like, with competence and actually made into a, a you know, a film that actually is also great as a narrative, mm-hmm. also great as a pop culture piece, also yeah. great as a conversation starter, also great as a story about New York. All of those things, it just, mind was blown, you know.
3: It, it, it should also be said, too, um, kind of incredible that a studio made it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, when you read about the development of the film, it was supposed to be a Paramount. It almost got shot at Paramount. And then, uh, the head of the studio wanted the ending to essentially, he wanted Mookie and Saul to hug, essentially, and like round the edges off the ending of the film. And Spike refused to do that. And literally the next week sold it to Universal and, you know, the rest is history. But to your point, Aaron, I think one of the things that is obviously so powerful about this film is that it doesn't try to hand you an answer. I mean, it, it goes out of its way to have two quotes at the end that essentially almost contradict each other in terms right. of violence and nonviolence, and he doesn't try to give you an answer to this, to the situation. The the you know the people still debate why Mookie throws the, well, the the garage the the garbage can. I don't think there's much of a debate really to be had there, but I understand that there are people that you know have alter you know different views. Well, there are it,
0: a lot of there there are a lot of possible reasons why Mookie threw the through the garbage yeah. can. I. I I, I mean, I agree with you, but I think what's uh, what I think is so powerful, and Aaron yeah. is, Aaron, you come from a, from a place where you were aware of all these incidents before, and I come from a place where I was not aware of the incidents in the early 80s, um, and these obviously have animated so much of our political uh, discourse and our culture in the last 30-plus years. To me, what's so powerful about the movie is not that he you know, doesn't provide an answer. It's that he correctly sure. identifies the problem. Well, sure, that's Like that's something that like, I don't think people ever understood. And that's, I talked about this. We talked about this in another pod. I think we talked about this on, uh, on driving this Daisy. Sure. Um, when, you know, <laughs> Just in the, the the contrast,
2: did that but, film win Best Oscar? I'm, I'm asking facetiously, but, but yes, we should get to that at some point. But
3: go ahead, yes, yes, yes,
0: well, for sure. We and we can certainly now that we're doing both, we can kind of have that discussion and contrast those two movies. But
3: yeah.
0: I I think the biggest fault of Driving Miss Daisy is failing to adequately identify the problem, <laughs> and I think that you know. Like
3: it's one of the problems we trying to facing, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, but 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 what's the point of providing an answer, yeah when there when you don't even understand, understand the problem, yeah, what's yeah. happening sure. right, so yeah. that's that's what i think and 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 the the question of race in America probably cannot be in as a white guy that I'm obviously you know calling myself out, but cannot be adequately distilled from a white point of view, so when you have. White people behind the camera, white people writing the movie based on a play by a white guy, um, and the problem is, I guess, like white people, and black people don't really hear each other that well. I don't really think that's what's I going. I don't really. Don't, well, I think that's what With they're what? saying. I, th- I think it days. is. I think it's. I yeah. think that they're saying is, you know, if you guys only got in the same car and one of you were driving and the other was passenger was a passenger, you'd probably really right. like each other. And I, that's to me the, the the kind of amazing thing about do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Is it seems to have correctly identified and depicted the situation in real life. Um, yeah, this
2: um is is interesting. It's um to me the genius behind the film, you know, is is definitely that it recognizes that there is no easy answer. There's yes, there's and there's several issues by the way. I think that the film brings up race relations is one. But there's also a heavy dose of capitalism, and you know, just even like little bits. There's a bit in there that I, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought about it until I rewatched the film just recently. Where uh, in the Heights had their version of it, where there's a there's an icy guy who's coming up the street selling icies, and Mr., the Mister Softy truck comes running through, and all of the kids leave the little business to go to big business. In the Heights did their own version of it, but I'm just saying there are bits throughout that. Not only talk about race relations, but capitalism, um, sexism—you know—to a large extent, yeah. and also the fact that it's any of those conversations are never, you know, one-sided. I mean, he's having—he's—he has just as much commentary with the three guys, Sweet Dick Willie, and you know, the three guys sitting on the side that are criticizing themselves for, you know, whether it's lack of initiative or lack of vision or lack of opportunities or whatever—and that's just within the black community. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, much less. Commentary on immigrants and immigration and opportunities when you come here. It's it's there's so much jam packed in less than two hours of, of of you know of scene work. Every single scene, a lot of times is touching on on multiple elements. But what it does do that driving Miss Daisy and all the way up to things like the Green Book. You know, just a couple of years ago that they don't even attempt to do is to treat it with an adult point of view. You know, let's be adults about this. It's not It's not as simple as just a handshake or let's share in a right. joke or let's share a Coke and a smile. You know, that's a fairy tale. You know, certainly there's a place for that. And, you know, it's comfort food to some that you feel like we're just alike. We just need to find common ground and, and everything will be fine. What this looks at is how the systems in play, even if you do find common ground, which Mookie and Sal have plenty of, by the way, the systems in place also, a lot of times, um, prevent there being any kind of real progress beyond you know that individual connection. You know, I, I love the way they play the police, for instance, in that movie. Where, if you notice the way it plays out, it's, it's never just police don't like black people; police love white people. The Frankie Vincent scene where he comes rolling through there, he has the just much frustration with police as, as anybody else, <laughs> and at the end. When police are driving off, the Korean guy joins in with them. It's, Bangs you know, know so it's, you know, these are these are institutions that are also in place that are much bigger than simply a pat kind of let's let's share a meal and it'll all be good. It's it's just not that simple.
0: The the police, the, the depiction of the police is perfect because the, the depiction of the police is is not uh it is there's obviously racism within these two policemen? Mm-hmm. One, you know, one of whom is uh, Latino, but that it really is just get me out of here as fast as I can, right? Not get me out of this neighborhood, get me out of this situation, right? Yeah. right. And they don't care necessarily how they get out, which is how you wind up killing Radio Raheem because it's just this. This is the path of least resistance right now because that's what's so cool about that Frank Vincent scene. Is in that moment, the path of least resistance for them was to ignore Frank, friends and to basically say, you go back to your neighbor. You know, it's like, it's like, and I'm not defending him and I love him. And he, you know, he's a, my cousin is a cop, but I asked him, do you racially profile? And he said, of course, I racially profile. I racially profile people who are, who look like their neighbors are not supposed to be in no matter if they're white, black or whatever. And what I take away from that is you're just looking for shortcuts. You're just looking for easy ways to try to move your day forward because mm-hmm. you're the, you're 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 in a car with someone you might not like for 8 hours a day with spotty air conditioning and your job is stressful. So the you, you know you just obviously there's racism within the police department but it is just another system that is poorly run. It's just mm-hmm. another system that's poorly run and leads yeah. leads you know obviously this this falls primarily on people of color and other people who are in impoverished situations who don't, who, who won't cause as much of an issue for police moving forward.
3: Hey, I, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Aaron.
0: No, no, I was just going to say it,
2: it, it, where you're kind of the, what you're looking for, I think is, is that phrase disenfranchised. It's so if you don't have any power, yes. you, know, you know, within that system, and I mean, you know, you heard that song, I don't know how many times throughout the movie, fight the power. power. (laughs) What's the power that, you know, is being fought. It's, you know, those who actually have, you know, some kind of influence to actually take lives and or decide who has business and who doesn't, but go ahead.
3: No, I was, I, I, I mean, obviously I agree with everything you guys are saying. I, I, I wanted to just sort of talk for a second about Spike's tone, because I think that there's, especially in this film and in a lot of his films, um, he finds this level of theatricality in terms of the stylistic uh, sort of approach to it, the music, the what have you, that it's dialed up just enough for it to feel, I want to say comforting, I guess, to some level or another. Because what he's talking about is subject matter that can be you know, tough for people to watch. And I think that he finds this way to make it feel... Uh, like a movie, quote-unquote, but at the same time, it's still very hard-hitting stuff. Like, I, I just think about, um, first of all, like, you said how each individual scene is sort of this beautiful, almost one-act play unto itself, the way that these people, the way the dialogue is structured, but then you have, you know, sort of this this classical Spike Lee score that feels just almost a little bit too loud, and I don't say that in a bad way, but it does sort of at times make it feel a little bit like you're watching a play sometimes, that things are just dialed up a little bit. I mean, what are your thoughts about sort of... Because the style of this movie is so immediate and so refreshing. Like, I can't even imagine what it must have been like to see it in 89. And you can see, obviously, how people have cribbed from it since. But I'm, I'm just sort of curious as to what you think of the style of it. I mean,
2: you know, Spike, Spike definitely is very clear. And you can see that from the very opening He's in your face, that this film is meant to be in your face. At the same time, a lot of it to me is a comedy. Like, you know, it's yeah. on purpose. I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, Sweet Dick Willie's played by Robin Harris, is one of the most legendary comics. He died early, you know, and, and hopefully is still remembered, I think, you know, even now. But there are a lot of really funny moments, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. he, and even between Ozzy Davis and Ruby D you know rest in peace you know real life married couple that's kind of a lighthearted rom-com if you will for like two people in their 70s you know no yeah.
3: um, they weren't even 70s. bugging out is funny at
2: times even bugging I mean, out yeah yes. you know what i mean like I some of that over the top also which i think spike's aware of and some of that's giancarlo esposito also playing it to like the rafters <laughs> as well yeah. yeah like dude calm the fuck down even a few yeah. people are kind of like even a few people in the movie are like dude just calm the fuck down <laughs> Um it's you know there's there's a I think there's an awareness of certainly like, you know, these are larger than life personalities. there's a mm-hmm. there is a certain kind of like New York as- aspect of that which is you know big and you know presentational. Um, but at the same time, what I took from it, you know, and the more whenever I watch it now, what I think is I, I, it's a deliberate structure in my opinion to kind of show that these tensions are mm-hmm. like right there underneath the surface every single day right yeah mm-hmm. like 99% of the time they're right there it's just every once in a while they'll it'll flash you know there's a term that's used I think a lot with a film like this where you know it's not so much I use this term a million times by the way within the last year because I just didn't you know I, I created a cop show. But it's not so much that the issues are t- are timely; is that they're timeless. They're always there, always. It's just you know, every here and there, we'll get a reminder of, oh yeah, yeah, that's still that's still an issue, you know. And I feel like this film does a really good job of that, where it's like any given day, this this shit could pop off. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. any given day, and especially in a confined space. When we're talking about the example of this being like a play, it's literally one block on place in on a day, block, yeah, yeah. You know, it's very much, very much like a stage play, but it's very much playing that kind of like how people can laugh at each other and kind of be ridiculous. And also at the same time, there's a lot of like pain and anger and truth Mm -hmm. underneath all of that, you know,
3: um, you talk about the, the the fact that it takes place on one block, which makes the movie feel really intimate, but not small. Like, yeah. and that's a testament. That's the way, that's like, the way he shoots like, it. and, and yeah, it was like, just, just, That's the way oh, they shoot yeah. it. it it's, it's tremendous. I mean, I, I one of the things, too, that I was just kind of gobsmacked by this time around was thinking, you know, it's made for $6 million. I mean, this movie looks unreal. I mean, that that is obviously a small budget, but right. thinking about how deep the benches of this cast. I mean every single performance is perfect. Despite the fact that like there were some people that he wanted for certain roles that you know he didn't get. De Niro uh, notoriously turned down the role of Saul. They got the um, perfect guy. Yeah, no, I mean Danny Aiello getting his only Academy Award nomination for this performance, but he's perfect. He's absolutely Guy nomination in a black movie, which happens all the
0: time, but <laughs> sadly, yes. Yeah. He's perfect. He's one of my favorite actors ever, and he's incredible.
2: I'm 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 glad he, he got it. I, I did some thinking on that too, where if I'd have looked at the rest of the cast, you know, Ozzie Davis would probably be the only other place where I'm like, well, maybe, you know, as as a best supporting, that would have been great. I don't think Spike would have gotten it.
0: Um I would have to Spike. Spike's I would have so given so it to good Spike. this. Yeah. I think there I so you know, I, it's funny. I watched. I, I hadn't seen this movie in probably five years at least. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things I was concerned about going into it, just like having a little pit in my stomach, I'm like, "Is Spike gonna do okay?" Like, I couldn't <laughs> remember. I couldn't. I couldn't remember if it felt. If, if it felt like one of those performances, right. like one of those end light Shyamalan performances, where you're like, <laughs> "You didn't have to put yourself in the movie." I think he's amazing. Yeah. So he's, understated. He's Perfect. the
2: best he's ever been as an yeah. actor in this movie. I will say yeah. that. And I, I do think <clears throat> I know the script was written, and I know most of it's up on the screen. But mm-hmm. there are definitely times where the reason, the reason why I think that he's really good in this is he's he's very he's being very natural. A lot of it I think is being sure. himself. So in scenes where he's acting with his sister, any of the scenes where he's acting with his sister, I always feel like he's right on the verge of just like yeah. breaking character. Yep. You know, so to speak, they're both kind of laughing with each other. a few yep. times but that's that's a natural smile. That's I don't even know if that's a mookie smile. That's, just, yeah. that's <laughs> him going like my sister just hit me on camera and I'm going don't, don't. like, seriously, I'm the big brother. You know, don't do that. Like, I think, you know, so that's where I think there's just a naturalness for sure to his performance. And a lot of it, too. He's allowed to kind of play the straight man, so to speak. He can be in a scene with bugging out and allow bugging out to do his thing. Mm -hmm. He can be in a scene where Sal and, you know, John Turturro, you know, are kind of being the bombastic ones. And Spike can be like the steady. Spike is, you know, he's he's the biggest observer. I feel like at the end, once everything goes down, he's sitting on that curb. To me, you know, that's that's what Mookie did best, is that you see everything really through his lens, you know, Um, totally. Yeah.
3: He's you know, Spike obviously has acted in, you know, a handful of his of his own films. I mean he's he's really good in Malcolm X as well. Um, but again, knows his lane. You know what I mean? Like never really ventures out of something that he knows he can do. Um there's a reason why he's only in the first third of Malcolm X, for instance. Like, you know, he, he understands where he makes sense. I mean, he's in Crooklyn um, briefly yeah. as as like a he's huffing glue a lot in that yeah. movie, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but again, like, I think that that's really interesting because it does feel like that's kind of rare. You have the directors that are known for directing that pop up in other people's movies from time to time, your Scorseses or what have you. Or you have directors where, like, the whole movie's on their shoulders, like a Kevin Costner or a Mel Gibson or something like that. So it's just interesting that Spike is somewhere sort of in between those. Like, I don't know if Spike's been in any films directed by anybody else. There, you know, I, I don't think he has. Uh, there's no one else like him. Yeah. Uh,
0: physically, attitudinally, yeah. <laughs> yes. and, um, and uh, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, physically, attitudinally, and, and just this idea of, like, well, look, if Spike Lee, kind of like Woody Allen, you know, if, if Spike Lee wrote a role yeah. for a Spike Lee type yeah. in the history of films, <laughs> who do you cast? <laughs> now, I t- I'll tell you who you cast. You cast Jamie Foxx and put a bad wig on him and some bad <laughs> teeth. And have him bend over like he did with Boudini Brown, because like my point is there is no Aaron is not on board with this depiction. (laughs) I'm I'm going already in my
2: mind. I'm like, that's the movie I'm not going to go see. I'm I'm going.
0: Well, no. Well,
3: you but you you
0: understand what I'm saying is you don't. That's that. That's how poor of a job we have done at showing the range of black men on on TV, right, and on film.
2: Yeah, I, I will. I will say though, um, and certainly it was definitely true in 1989 for sure, which is one of the re- really big reasons again why when when we started to hear the name Spike Lee, it was like, mm-hmm. I don't even know if I can compare it to anything. There was no other art form or right. entertainment form that I can name where it was, it was like in 1989 that was like that was like the, the the first person, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sports mm-hmm. was, we had Michael Jordan at that point. We had a bunch of people, Magic Johnson. Comedy, we'd had Eddie Murphy for many years, Richard Pryor before that. Um, But in film, like we'd had Gordon Parks and he's for where from where, where, where I'm from. But it was this guy come out and do his thing. The reason why I bring that up is because fast forward to now, and I think what we've seen in the last like five, Six years is there is starting to be more of an expansion of the different types sure. that you now start to see. Sure. So, like, if I had to cast it from like a new generation, there are a few, you know, up and coming actors that if I looked at like Dear White People, there's a kid on there. Sure, account, sure, sure. Could he play young, geeky Spike? I can see, that, you know. <laughs>
0: You know, you know who could do it? The dude who played every the dude who played young Chris Rock. Uh, right. What was his right. name? Tyler. Um,
3: Wait, on everybody loves Chris? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah but yeah. he grew
0: up and he was in another show that, that he's on
3: he, Abbott uh, Elementary now. He's there you uh, go. he's he's and he's fantastic on it. I think it's you know, it's it's worth also saying too, like Spike became this kind of larger than life thing. Like I don't want to say he, you know what I mean? When I think about the 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 uh, Michael Jordan ads that he did for Nike when I think about even just seeing him uh, at the Oscars in 2019 when he got to be the one to give uh, Bong Jun ho the, the Academy Award for Parasite and then screaming for Scorsese to stand up and like just he's he's just this guy he's just so energetic uh, and so excitable and even when he won the Oscar and he jumps on Samuel L. Mm-hmm. Jackson like there's yeah. just yeah. something about him that feels so jubilant and um, you know, you,
2: know you, you bring up a good point, too. Um, this is not a small thing, but this is a perfect non sequitur. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because there was an awareness of Spike, too, before he really hit the mainstream as a director. That's unusual. Mm-hmm. There's no other director who's, who I can compare that to. Right. We didn't know who Steven Spielberg really was until you had seen Jaws and Raiders sure. and all of that. It would be the equivalent of if Steven Spielberg was known for selling cereal you know, sure, like sure. five years before Jaws came out. Right. We knew Spike, is, that's Mars Blackman. You know, that's part of the <laughs> conversations. Like, it's, it's the dude from the Jordan commercials. That's no small thing. And he was funny in those commercials. And he was already kind of like, he was doing little man jokes well, well before Kevin Hart, you know, made it a sure. Cottage Industry. So he was already pointing fun at himself. He already had self-deprecation, but he also had a kind of an element of cool because Michael Jordan seemed to be his best friend. That was all before Do the Right Thing even came out. It's
3: crazy. It's yeah. really crazy. I, I feel like speaking of non sequiturs although this is sort of connected. Um, Aaron, you're a very big sneaker guy. So I want to talk for a second here. He's got he's got some on display for for those that have uh, the the video of our Patreon, you can you can see them. Um you before we got on, mic, you and I chatted a little bit about this because when the scene happens when the guy in the Larry Bird jersey <laughs> steps on, uh, steps on Bugging Out's uh, New Jordans yeah. and scuffs them, yeah. and it sort of turns to this whole much larger thing, feels like you mentioned that this was a, a big moment for you as a oh, teenager.
2: So, I just want to point out a couple of things about that scene because I, I you talk about that scene itself. <laughs> A million, yeah. uh, like, uh, we, you know, we could talk for two hours just on that scene. Sure. <laughs> so, number one, um, you know, it, it definitely impacted me as, as a kid because at that time, you know, there are a few things, few items, I think, that kind of symbolize coolness, you know, fashion-wise. This is before we really hit big-time fashion for the mainstream, you know, kids mm-hmm. weren't walking around with, you know, things from Paris or anything like that. You know, you had like Michael Jackson jackets, you know, you had like, <laughs> you know, sweatpants and, and uh, we we had called them parachute pants and you had like sneakers, like just, and I mean like two or three pairs of sneakers, not like a hundred, like there is now. Air Jordans at that time, if you could just get one pair of Air Jordans, and I don't care if the rest of your outfit came from the thrift store, if you had on <laughs> Jordans, it upped your cool quotient a thousand times. So that was every kid's goal was, you know, just to, to have those. The thing about that scene that I find that's fascinating, though, is that it does a couple of things. First of all, is it's brilliant for the narrative because it's setting up that group. Yeah. The group that's amping things up, yep. they're the instigators of the film.
0: They're yeah, the Martin, ones. That, Martin Lawrence born. and, yeah. You
2: got Martin yeah. before he's Martin.
0: Yeah, he's doing with that the, weird with weird the silly song. boys. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing that... If I had to... Literally the only thing in the movie, I would <laughs> have... Well, two, there's two things. There are two things that, that if, if I went back in time, would be like, you know, you may not need that. One is Martin's whole tongue list thing. Yeah. I, don't know. I don't know if that was based on a real person or what that was. Because he's, you know, he's Martin Lawrence. He's one of the funniest dudes on the planet in just a couple of years. And and he's not the funniest dude in that scene. You know, there's, there's no. a few dudes in that scene. So you have that. You have the mentions of Black Panther... Way before there was a film, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, just just as an aside, Ruth uh, <laughs> Carter, who did costumes, do wardrobe for this film, also did wardrobe for Black Panther. That's so awesome. you have that tie in. That's cool. um, and then, you know, and then you just have the, the aspect of um, of, again, like there's no easy black or white literally in that scene. You know, the idea that these are all Brooklyn natives, you know, and that being like the exclamation point on the end of that scene, of course, Go back to Massachusetts. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn. Ah, oh. very New York, very New York response. <laughs> the,
0: the 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 by far the meanest thing Spike does in this movie towards white people is, is a, have a, a white guy from Brooklyn wear a fucking Larry Bird jersey down the middle of Bed Stuy, and then as a Mets fan yeah. have another white guy yeah. Yeah. fucking defend. Defend Roger Clemens in fucking eighty nine over Dwight Gooden. What kind of animal would do that? What kind of New York animal would ever do that? And that's the guy we're supposed to like. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I think. I honestly, I think. I think. I, <laughs> I, I think that guy wearing. First of all, that guy's fucking hair. But I think that guy yeah. wearing the Larry Bird jersey. Yeah. And in my opinion, I know this isn't the reading of the film, but like. He went out of his way to scuff that shit. It's not that hard to avoid them on a big fucking sidewalk. No, so no, doing no. that and wear, <laughs> wearing wearing so, that fucking Larry Bird jersey. So I only have
2: I only have two two things that I, if I could go back in time, I hmm. might suggest that the tongueless thing with Martin Sure. With Martin. The the whole way, and believe me, I studied when I was a kid. I studied this scene like the Zapruder film because I was like, I, this has never happened in my life. If I ever get a pair of these, that's like the worst nightmare. The way it's staged, there's there's no way that he could have actually hit bugging out sneakers the way it is. So he's bu- he's facing the. I feel like I'm doing the Seinfeld thing. Of That's like,
3: great. Yeah, yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> like the yeah. JFK yeah. scene. Another guess, well, the Keith Hernandez scene, in my opinion. But you know,
2: yes, yes, yes. Well, so Roger McDowell and. Yeah. <laughs> So, th- that so able, good. being able to break down, like, the very specifics, like, whenever I see that scene now, I'm like, oh, there's so many different ways you could stage that where it would look more natural. No one's bugged by that except for me, by the way. But whenever I see it, I'm like, <laughs> looking. at that was actually doing the right thing. He's facing away from him. Yeah. You know, like, that dude would have to come completely out of yeah. his way to get the front right corner of his Jordan, Air Jordan, white cement four, by the way, which is like, <laughs> the Holy grail of sneakers at the time for me, but I, you know, whenever I see that, I always, that, that always kind of registers to me. Um, but certainly, you know, it's interesting because the other thing is, is from that scene you have, it serves a really specific narrative purpose, which it clearly does, you know, mm-hmm. what this group is. It does introduce the world that the mainstream world, at least to Martin Lawrence, and you will get to know him in the next you know few years. You get a mention of Black Panther in that, which is great. Um, But also for pop culture, you know, I think it actually for Nike put them on a map in a way where that's a free Nike commercial. That whole thing is, you know, two minutes of basically this is why you should care. You even know the price of the shoes. I thought that was brilliant. And, you know, I don't know that Spike did that on purpose, but certainly for the Mars brand, you know, you have that in there as well. Capitalism, again, like there's all these little You know, comments when they're talking about the price of the shoe and why it costs and you know all of that plays into to me the the value of life and the value of property and that's still a big thing it's like what do we care about the most is it the destruction of the property or is it the loss of life or is it a mix of both you know where's the emphasis placed Um, because it does feel no a little bit we've seen that in the last couple years even you
3: know. No, 100%. I I think it's interesting, you know, at the end of the film, when you have Saul talking to Mookie about, I built everything with my hands, every tile, every whatever, there... What I think is interesting about that is it tries to it does try to blend those two things together, right? Like he has dedicated his life to this establishment, to you know, to the making of this thing. So to some degree or another, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's no question that obviously Radio Rakim's life is worth far more than than you know Saul's pizzeria. That that's not up for question. But I do think that Spike is doing what he can to infuse Saul's side of the argument with as much sort of humility, I guess, as, as is humanly possible or as much as sort of Saul's soul in that establishment. But it, it is interesting how the capitalist stuff comes into play.
2: So what's fascinating about that um, is certainly that final scene goes a long ways. I mean, the whole film does a good job, again, of like, there's a, seeing Saul's human side and you're also seeing the side of Saul that doesn't give a fuck, you know? Yep, constantly. Yep. And that's why a lot of times there's no easy answer where people stand on this film because people sometimes will choose the, the bits they really like. I like that yeah. Saul. The Saul that was nice to his sister and the Saul that is a good well, father. Nice
3: to his sister. Bride. Maybe a little too nice to his yeah. sister.
2: <laughs> but I don't think but so. his, his, The last 10 minutes though kind of like hit on that again where you had that final coda with him and, and Mookie. But if you listen to the radio bit after that, mm-hmm. once Vuki walks away and he's taking the yeah. money, which I also thought was hilarious by the way, he reaches back down and grabs the he money, still takes it. Had to, had to. <laughs> I was like, I guess <laughs> everyone's thinking Like, don't leave the money there. No, but he
0: had to. Only Spike would, only Spike would have him pick up the money too, because yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it's so, it's it's so self-important, self-defeating to have that character leave the money. Two hundred fucking dollars. I know what this guy goes through on a daily basis. Yeah, that money good. means something. Of course. Like don't stand on fucking ceremony. Okay, go ahead. No, it's so the, here again,
2: you know, it's like those are elements that I don't know get enough credit is that just that element of just trying to make a living and trying to make, you know, trying to just try yeah, trying to make money. Honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the opening scene we see is with him, you know, we're on his back and he's counting money. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yes. a big part of that. And that's its own conversation, too, by the way, of like whether or not that's actually for a righteous cause. You know, he's not a great father. He's not a great boyfriend. It's not as though he's actually doing that for the good of the family. It's 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 because that's what you do. You make money to pay the bills. But that said, as he's crossing the street on that last shot, the, the radio bit underneath that is still talking more about. The property that was damaged and and yeah. what, the what the mayor had to yeah. do about it rather than there's a kid you know there's a guy who was killed and we need to get to the to, that ended up being a big debate by the way with police forces that chokehold that was used you know yeah. and notoriously LAPD had to two few years later you know had to end up outlawing that for a very good reason but there's none of that like on the radio it's it, that's all about building property how much money is lost and what do we do about that
3: so and then a this, grace note at the end of, of the, we love you radio, Rakim, but I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's this idea of like whole bunch of this and then, oh yeah, we, we, we obviously we miss you and we love well, you. Well, because it's
0: Samuel Jackson's, you know, he, even the, I think the point is even the black radio station says, mm-hmm. you know, has that kind of commentary on it. But mm-hmm. I think if you look back at this movie and what I, looking at it from Sal's, not his perspective, looking at the Sal character. An unbelievable job of making that character three-dimensional multi-layer and you look at what happened and you think when he uses the n-word in the pizzeria that's when he kind of you know reveals his true self and his mask drops and it's like okay at this point i don't really care what happens at the pizzeria but i think that's so fucking irrelevant personally Mm -hmm. i think what i think his like it matters not to say it doesn't matter but i think what the what's really important is and it's it's more of a it's more of a holistic thing um, Sal, in his heart, because he says it at the end, it says, "I built this with every tile. I put every tile by heart and soul into this. Yep. This is mine." That's the way white people feel about America. That's right. what they're getting at, right? We did this thing, and Sal, like people in his in his position, who are basically the people with the power in that neighborhood, rely on the police to come protect them. And by accepting into that deal, you can't be part of the solution. Ultimately, you just can't because you are ultimately the person with the power. So the, the world Sal wants is the world I think a lot of people, a lot of white people go into this movie want, which is I want a world where Mookie comes into my restaurant and I can tell him he's my son. I can still kind of push him around, but he's my buddy and we're all buddies and everything's fine. But when push comes to shove and when, you know. The fucking bubble gets pierced, or in this case, right. the window gets broken. The police are coming to protect you, Sal, and not them. And you are entering into that deal. And, and that he calls him out like, on that,
3: for sure. I mean, right? he's is like, you, you, know, you, you know that the insurance is going to pay for this, and it's all going to be fine. And, like, well, what, are you, pro- what are you complaining He's
0: about? protected. Yeah. They go into the, the <laughs> I mean, you have John Turturro, who's essentially, essentially like, uh, you know, we go into this neighborhood. They don't even want us. Mm-hmm. They act. They, they they act as if they're fucking heroes for doing this job, but really they're the ones in the neighborhood. Out of all the people, including the Koreans, including the Latinos, who are the who, who when they call the police come, and that is a a deal they've entered. That's a deal they've entered into, and I don't know how you can begin. To solve the problem, if that's still the structure in the, in the country.
3: Well, I think it's interesting too, because so the the scene that uh, that Saul and uh, it, it, his son's name is Pino, is that right?
0: Pino's yeah. the Pino's John yeah, Turturro. Pino Toro, is, and Vito is um, Richard Edson
3: right? So so they they have that scene, which which was partially improvised, apparently. So there's the scene when they're talking together, and there's the window and. Basically, John Teshura is like, Let, "Let's just sell this place. Let's go move to you know a neighborhood where there's you know Italians, what have you." Um, and and Saul essentially says, "Like, I've watched these kids grow up. I fed this community. You know, this is." You know, it's the good Sal, if you will. The, the Sal that we want to believe that this guy is to some degree or another. Um, the, the one that sees so much anger and ignorance in his son that he doesn't, you know, that maybe he sees a part of himself in his son, whatever it is. Um, I think it's really compelling. I think it's really interesting that the sorrow on Saul's face when Totoro goes outside and starts yelling at the um, you know, the, the the mentally challenged or the mentally uh, smiling. Yeah. Character, it's just Played it's just really
2: interesting. Smith, who's a very he's excellent right. actor, legend on his own right,
3: hundred percent. It's just I think it's an interesting scene to to be the sort of the 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 flip side of what you're talking about, Kenny. Right? Which is, and I agree with everything you're saying. But again, I think that this film, one of the myriad of strengths this film has, is trying to show a balance, show both sides of the coin to some degree or another, and force. Its audience to grapple with the complexity of the situation and that it is not black and white. I obviously don't, I don't mean that as a pun, but like I just think there's just something very uh, you know, brilliant about that. I think that, you know, when you hear about how the studio wanted a happier ending tacked onto this film, it's like, of course it did, right? Like, of course they want a pad ending. Of course they want a movie like Driving Miss Daisy, for instance, which is a movie that that doesn't really grapple, really doesn't alienate or push its or challenge its audience. This movie has the confidence to yeah. do that.
2: Yeah, that that continues to this day. I mean that not not a lot has changed in that regard. It's, it's kind of a I mean this is another way and this is where I this is where I give Spike props in a way that, that I'm not sure other directors have had to face. Um but the existence of his films, the fact mm-hmm. that a lot of them exist and were made are miracles unto themselves. A lot of them. You know, because we're not just talking about raising funds. Woody Allen has to go through that, you know, each time he makes a film. But you're talking about...
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance
3: plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
1: In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates. Like Sandra, start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today.
2: You're talking about an uneasiness, and an, and a lot of times, even an interest in the films not existing. You know, mm-hmm. the, he's had hostile efforts to make sure that he does not finish the films that he makes.
4: Yeah. And by the way, that's
2: not always just from the studios or the powers that mm-hmm. be, you know.
3: But he, I mean, he struggled to, I mean, Malcolm X is a notorious you know, is movie and he, where. He had, he had trouble halt-
2: from all sides. I mean, yeah. you know, including black people as well. Like there's, mm-hmm. that's where I give him, you know, just so much credit. It's just the fact that he exists. I don't know if people understand that. The fact that he exists and has been able to build the career that he did without really a track record before that. There was no yeah. one like him before is incredible. It's as incredible, if not more so, than any individual film. And this was the film that basically announced that he's not going anywhere. You know, really.
3: Well, you know, I, I think it's also worth stating. So, apparently, in, in uh, 2021 at the Cannes Film Festival uh, award ceremony, Chaz Ebert, the wife of Roger Ebert, noted that her husband had been appalled that the film had not received any awards at the Cannes jury, Cannes jury in 1989, and that he had threatened to boycott the festival as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, While Spike Lee noted that the U.S. press at the time thought the film would start race riots all across America, drawing loud applause from the attending press, he pointed to the continued relevance of the film story three decades on and quote unquote said, you would think and hope that 30-something motherfucking years later that black people would have stopped being hunted down like animals. Uh, It's, you know, again, speaking to the fact that Spike Lee is never going to, you know, to hold back. This is just... And, and how much of a uh, how important that is I think is just it can't be stated enough.
2: Yeah well that's that's the thing. I think well, most of the time I think when this film's discussed you know even though it does not have a neat ending human mm-hmm. beings the tendency is to try to find some kind of neat solution from it. Mm-hmm. you know it's like this film is saying this. I think the brilliance of it a lot of it is it's not trying to say there's an easy answer or that it's even going to go away. Yep. That's the yep. crazy thing. That's the thing that I think drives people nuts. Yeah. Is the film's not saying that this is gonna be solved. It's not saying that, you know, and it's not giving okay. you the recipe for it, you know, like a fairy tale would. Mm-hmm. It's simply presenting the complex complexities of these are a lot of that that tend to feed into this and Should understand be. that that is something that is timeless. Again, you know, this mm-hmm. it's been there before the film, it'll be there after. You had two of the most prominent Americans of all time, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, who were commenting on this in the 60s. Yeah. you know, And in 89, we're, they're still dealing with it. And 20 years after that, still dealing with it. It's, you know, I think one of the reasons why it is probably the top film of the 80s, or at least one of them for sure, is that it leaves you with that uneasy feeling. There is no, it's unforgettable because it, it gives you the feeling, I think, of Bexley being in the middle of what it can be, Summarized as a true clusterfuck, you know. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you're sitting on the curb. You're going, "What the fuck?" There's a lot of shit yeah. happening.
0: Yeah. You, you know, in, yeah. in I, I would imagine a lot of audiences felt that way in '89. In 2022, it's uh, it's it's depressing in a way that uh, yes. be, be, because it, it it doesn't feel like what the fuck, right? It feels like. The same. Yeah, and that's kind of why it surprises me that that Spike even said thirty motherfucking years later. You'd think that we would have solved this problem. Yeah, because I don't think he believes that. No, right?
2: I don't no. think, I think he he's Being sarcastic, that. I, I really do. <laughs> yeah, I miss
0: that? Yeah, it's you know, it's like when I the show I worked on. We have a lot of black writers. Trump was elected, and the black white writers on the show were. You know, apoplectic, and the black writers on the show are like, "It's a shitty country." <laughs> like, and we're just like, and we're just like, huh? And they're like, "We knew this was going to happen cause Cause did this is what happens." The, there was and a, it's clip. a bad show, and, and I mean, it's a bad country. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's, it's true, right, Aaron? Like, this is the. Oh, but among, I, I feels about to point
2: out something that I go. Do you, do you
3: think I don't know if we're talking about the same thing? There was a clip that was circulating on Twitter the other day from Big Brother. I don't know if you saw this, the, the the show where you know they block people up, right? Um, and oh, dude, I saw they, this live. Oh, you saw this live because I so watched. Basically, Big Brother. they didn't know what happened in the 2016 election. They thought it was right? a joke, and they were all asked all the, all the contestants were asked, wow. "Who do you think won the election the night that the you know the, of the election?" And all the white people said Hillary, and the one black contestant was like. I don't know, guys. I think, I think Trump might have <laughs> won, and it's like you know that's uh, it's an unfortunate reality.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I. What I thought you were going to point out SNL yeah, did a skit on on exactly what Kenny's pointing out, where it was uh, I think it was Chris Rock and Chappelle. Chappelle got yeah. obviously after that, but they did they did the skit um, about reactions, you know, afterwards, where it's um, and do the right thing plays right into that, which is. There's not a surprise by kind of, again, these things are right on the surface every day. So it's not a surprise yeah. when it peaks his head up. I think one of the more powerful things, again, about the ending again is that it ends on on actually a return to normal kind of note. You know, it's like he's it walking across the street. We pull out. It's a wide shot. It's a sunny day. People playing ball in the street again and people, yeah. you know, back to w- the way it was and that'll proceed until the next player. You know, yeah. that's is- America.
0: Which is why I find like Mookie's character to be so interesting and so important because he's only kind of momentarily on a side, right? Right. Mookie, most of the movie is on his own side. Very simply, I need to get through this day to get to the next day. I need to get through this day to get to the next day. I need to make this amount of money to do this. I need to see my girlfriend if I can. I need to buy bri- 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 for my kid if I can. I need to deliver these pizzas. I need to not piss people off and hope my friends don't piss people off. All this shit, right? But he he is just a person in America trying to like live his life. And which is so interesting to me in general because the constant like push and pull, I think people feel who care about this stuff is, all right, on one hand, there's a lot of really fucked up shit and I could maybe do something about it, but probably not. On the other hand, like I got to fucking make money too. Like mm-hmm. the system is the system mm-hmm. and I could rebel against the system and potentially put myself in like significant peril or like, I can just like fucking go about life and try to do my best within this system. And Keep you can, head down. Yeah. you can, you can, you can, you can act as if like, you can act as if like, you know, I'm not part of the problem or you can act as if like, um, you know, the system's ever going to change anyway. Mm-hmm. But I do think you kind of have to accept, I think you really do have to accept that, like, part of the reason it's not going to change is that so many people have been, like, you know, conditioned to just try to make that next dollar or a million, which everyone thinks they're going to
3: make right. tomorrow. But, you know. right. right. I, I well, think that this, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Just
2: really quick, Phil, on, on yeah, what yeah. you say because I think that commentary between Sweet Dick Willie, the the three, mm-hmm. you know, you know the the chorus, the Greek chorus, so to speak, if you will, when they're talking about you ain't going to do shit, like you're talking all of these, to me, that's mm-hmm. the scene where that's hitting on exactly what you're saying. It's like the average person does probably have really grand ideas of how I can change the world and, oh, this would be great if it were different, no matter what your politics are. But the average person is just trying to survive, you know, as well, Uh, unless you're spurred by something that's larger than you, you know, in those moments where it becomes kind of a group mentality. That film also, you know, I think in a big way is it's one of the reasons why it is different from Driving Miss Daisy, because it's not acting as though. And that's why it was ironic, too, by the way, when the press came out and they're like, oh, this film's going to cause riots and it's going to spur people to do things. (laughs) Film's actually saying the exact opposite. It's this is an observation. You come, you watch this. Most people are not going to do anything. You know, yeah, (laughs) go about their day. But I'm just. This is an insight into what we're dealing
0: with. In fact, I would say the whole fucking. All right, so I I, my reading is my reading is Mookie popped the balloon, right? My Mm -hmm. reading is this was going to happen, and Mookie popped the balloon, and. I think do the right thing is one of those moments do the right thing is like that, that movie existing, sure. having somebody acknowledge reality. I think yep. particularly for black people in America was a moment where you start to say, okay, maybe there is progress, you know, maybe like if universal can put out a movie like this and Spike can get seen like this, maybe there is progress. And that actually helped a hell of a lot more than I should go and you know, find the nearest black limo driver and, you know,
3: shake his hand.
2: Right.
3: I, you know, I, you bring up uh, *Driving Miss Daisy*, Aaron, and I, I think it's worth noting. Um, I didn't know this, but apparently, at the ceremony at the Oscars, um, while announcing the Best Picture nominees, Kim Basinger caused controversy by going off book and saying, "We've got five great films here, and they're great for one reason because they tell the truth. But there's one film missing from the, this list that deserves to be on it because, ironically, it might be, might tell the biggest truth of all, and that's do the right thing." I mean, a, a bold and interesting thing for her to Kim do. Basinger, Kim Basinger, ever?
0: Yeah. uh <laughs> see I'm, I'm more shocked that they let her. That they let her <laughs> announce Best Picture. I mean, 19- I mean, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get like Jack Nicholson for that job. I mean, you get you get the girl for Batman. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, all I know is oh, I'm kidding. That's that that's incredible and shocking. It's amazing. Well, yeah.
3: And Spike Lee apparently later thanked her for it. Um, I, I think it's just I think it's fascinating that she did it. You know, Kenny and I, we've talked about the 1989 Oscars and how fascinating it was. We had um David McMillan, who Aaron, you might remember obviously from uh from Sleepy Hollow, he came on to talk about David driving Miss Daisy with us. And we kind of unpacked all of that, like the the just sort of I mean, even just when we did Born on the Fourth of July the other week, Kenny, like, it's just so interesting that Driving Miss Daisy becomes that movie, that it becomes this. And it's not obviously all that dissimilar from Green Book. Seeing Spike's face when Green Book won at the Oscars is one of the best photos captured where he's just like, well, same shit 30 years later. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy.
0: It's, it's only a little different.
3: And I, it's the, <laughs> sa-
0: the same result. So the result's the same. Yes. The only thing that's like different is like driving Miss Daisy was anointed, and Green yes. Book was a surprise. Sure,
3: which sure, is sure.
0: Also very you not know, like not like a massive surprise on the day. But you and I happened to talk about this yesterday. Right. Like yeah, it yeah. was Green Book and Roma neck and neck uh, yeah. to the end, the, yeah, the end of that yeah. ceremony. Uh Whereas there was a little aspect of driving Miss Daisy, driving Miss Daisy verse um versus Born on the Fourth, of, on the of, July, fourth of July. I yeah. think people knew at the time and had kind of already processed.
3: That this is happening, whereas Green Book, was yeah, like, we didn't You yeah, must, must.
0: <laughs> be kidding me.
3: It, it's it was one of it's it's just it's it's really interesting, and we talked about this on our uh, our Dead Poets Society episode, Aaron. But um, the the best screenplay nominees in 1989 were uh, When Harry Met Sally, Do the Right Thing, Sex Lies and Videotape, Crimes and Misdemeanor, and. Uh, Dead Poet Society, and they put the screenwriter of who was a guest and a lovely man and a, all that next to Spike Lee. He had to climb over Spike Lee to go get his Oscar. Like, that's just like, who did this? Well, here's another thing, too. I mean, and again,
2: that's why I give really Spike. Spike hasn't gotten his due as far as just how monumental yes. he is, mm-hmm. you know, and how monumental he's been. Um, as a quick aside, I mean, I think that yeah. the biggest thing with him is that the amount of people he's influenced, the fact that he made that film, made an impact, and did it in a way where he was able to not only make a great film, but also have what I call nutritional value, heaps of it in that film. Yeah. Yeah. Influenced, you know, generations to come. You know, there's no John Singleton and Boys in the Hood without that. There's no Huge Brothers without that. All the way up until where we're at right now, you know. The fact that you have Atlantas that exist and Insecure's that exist. Yeah, these are all shows that are not just looking to entertain you, but they also have nutritional value.
3: Yeah.
2: Before Spike, there wasn't really that, you know, like, you know, this. It, so I say all had to say this. By the time we get to 1989 and he, you know, kind of has kind of his kind of coming out party, people are aware of him, you know, we go to the Cannes Film Festival even before the Oscars, and, and I love Soderbergh. I respect the hell out of Soderbergh, mm-hmm. so I'll preface it with that. But I'm not talking about Sex, Lives and Videotape now. You know what I mean? Even the Certainly title not itself as much is as out a, of it. date. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, and we knew it at the time. That's where the Oscars a lot of times get it wrong, is you focus so much on kind of the present and what the status yeah. quo is rather than what's, what is the timeless piece that we're always going to remember. And there's countless films that are on that list. Mm-hmm. But certainly, even even if you were to debate Born on the Fourth of July versus you know um, Driving Miss Daisy, one is the safe, yep. present tense; the other is the one that shakes it up a little bit. And Oscars are known for going against that. You know, Spike was him. definitely that year. If there was a theme for him, is you're going to get shit on it every turn. <laughs> when it comes to these awards because yeah. you have the film that makes people not feel comfortable. There is no There, there is no safe wrap up. There is no category we can put it in because we never seen anything like this before you know so yeah it's particularly spicy when you actually then put competitors next to him where there's a physical act of having to climb over him and all of that stuff and that's why you also find a few years ago finally giving him you know basically yeah. the the career award because i think some people least acknowledge all right that was pretty shitty you know what
3: well, it it's i mean i i'm amazed you know that, that malcolm x didn't get more oscar love quite oh. frankly i yeah. mean it's crazy yeah. Yeah, so there, are, there,
0: there's a whole see, see the thing that like I could talk about Spike for a long time, sure. Um, and I do think he's one of my favorite filmmakers. But he went through a 15 year period where he wasn't taken seriously as a filmmaker. He went through a 15 year period where, from about bamboozled to probably Inside Man, where people weren't 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 watching his films. Mm-hmm. Um and considering them like the way they consider a Scorsese film, Scorsese puts out a film doesn't matter if yeah. it's Dune or fucking um, Hugo or anything, yeah, and, or whatever, people, sure. and Wolf of yeah. Wall Street and people take them seriously every time. Yep. And Spike earned that, and he gets that now again because he because he he came back in a major way. It wasn't Black Klansman? There's something. I mean, Twenty Fifth
3: Hour was a big movie. Twenty
0: Fifth Hour, yeah. Uh, probably Twenty Fifth Hour brought him back in that in that way um to to kind of that esteem but for a long the longest period of time he was spike lee knicks fan half mascot of the knicks um (laughs) and people had forgotten what he brings to the table and that in of itself is a crime that's like what we're seeing with jane campion to some extent right now which is like why did we let this happen I feel the same way with Spike because those were, I'm not trying to say those were bad films. I think no, he I made so many good films throughout this, period. I don't think he's ever made a bad film. Yeah. I, think, I, I think he's a lot like Scorsese in that every film he makes, there's something that no one else is doing and something that kind of makes you stand up. And the, thing, the other thing is, you know, we just had Born on the 4th of July, an 89 movie, which we loved. Mm. And I do love that film. And I think it's really important. I think, you mm. know, it basically, you know, birthed nothing other than a couple more Oliver Stone films whereas I think Spike's film this film in particular birthed everything that we think is cool that came out in the 90s like there is no
3: Quentin Tarantino without this movie ironically you know well I think it's also interesting you know he he makes a lot of you know Movies that, like, Clockers is an example, that was produced by Scorsese, which is, again, a movie that was slept on at the time. It's a great movie. Mm -hmm. I feel like people, for whatever reason, didn't, they just don't rally around his movies in the, to your point, Kenny, every time out. They do now, but, like, he got Game, which is a movie that I love of his, which, again, Mm -hmm. is a movie that sort of, I mean, it did, I think it did pretty well at the box office, all things considered. But, again, like, why is this just a blip? amazing deep career
2: i i would offer this i think it depends on who you're talking to because in in the circles that i've been in with african-american artists they revere him in a a way that that the average kid you know from new york might revere scorsese i revere both um but there is a lot of that. Spike is the first of his kind, you know. Right. Before Scorsese, there was Sergio Leone, you know. There were, you know, it's um, um, my guy who did Eight and a Half. Um, oh, Fellini. Fellini. There was kind of a type, you know, is sure. you know like, that he kind of fits that mold of okay, he's a brilliant uh, guy who t- can tell stories about Italian Americans, but others. There was no type for Spike you know mm-hmm. people really didn't know what to do with them even when when malcolm x came out which is actually maybe my favorite film of his that film is brilliant that that yeah. film and denzel's performance in that and, and i'm an al pacino Unreal. fan but the fact that al got you know sin of a woman over denzel's malcolm x, uh, that's one, one of my great protests of of the oscars yeah. but that said He was doing things that just there wasn't a category for it. That was that was a bio epic. One of the best bios I've ever seen, by the way. And that was done by a black director. There just wasn't a context for that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about Spielberg coming up, you know, there's kind of a lane for the big bombastic Hollywood. He took it to a next level. But there was a lane for that. You know, same thing with Lucas. Same thing with Scorsese. Even Kubrick, you know, you know, that kind of idea of like the altor and the the, the control freak. There was a lane for that. Spike had to create the lane that he's in, you know, and he's still Mm -hmm. building that. So what you had and I think that you still have is you do have corners that revere him and recognize that Mm -hmm. what he is is kind of the first of his kind. But I personally feel like he may not really truly be appreciated like he should, unfortunately, probably until he's gone you know, where you go, oh, that's right. There's like five or six really important films that he made that while they were happening. But I think,
3: I mean, I think we got one, you know, last year, like how to five bloods was again i don't mean to put so much importance on the oscars because let's be real it's not all that important but all that being said it is a barometer for this industry and it is interesting to me i think the five bloods was a fantastic movie filled with great performances yeah. um coming off of him winning the oscar you know a, a year or so previous it's just surprising to me that for whatever reason it feels like he has to start i don't want to say from zero but it's like there just doesn't seem to weirdly this momentum thing that i just can't that, seem to well, get
0: when the Oscars are the worst and uh, yes. very bad, yeah. but yeah. also as long as they're around, they matter a lot. So yeah. you know, like they that that is kind of square one for um, for for relevance and mm-hmm. the, the kind of that that first draft of history. So when they exclude a film like The Five Bloods, it really does matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you know what you're saying, Aaron, about like Spike's Lane. You look at a lot of people you mentioned. those, All those guys, Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, Coppola, Brian De Palma, were making different kinds of films. They were best friends. They were the film brats. Sure. Right? So they all kind of came up at the same time and supported each other. Spike did that for other filmmakers, if not, you know, hand in hand, like without Spike, there's no Singleton. There's no John Hughes. There's, there's not John Hughes. No Hughes brothers, like you said. Sure. Um, you know, even Ernest Dicker, Dickinson and, and other guys who kind of came in his is, is wake. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned Kubrick because Kubrick really doesn't have contemporaries to me either. And that's someone I think Spike is like, and that's someone I think Spike's career could have been kind of, they could have been viewed the same way in terms of this guy is a, a bit of a unicorn, but everything he does must be viewed and must be viewed twice because the, the just like Kubrick, the first reading of a Kubrick movie is just like, all right, let me give me what you got. <laughs> and then the second one is like, okay, I trust that you know what you're doing. And now I'm going to like engage with it. Right. And I feel like that is a hundred percent what happens with Do the Right Thing. Would do the right thing? Yeah. Do the right thing is so unlike any movie that came before it. For sure. There are some movies that feel similar by Black directors, but there is nothing that feels like a a movie like this that's also made with that studio sheen for sure you know that also feels yes. like that
3: i think so, that, yeah no sorry go ahead Kenny. i didn't mean to cut no
0: off. no i i i do i think it should have been a different kind of thing like Soderbergh kind of got this bump Soderbergh kind of for a while got that like yeah uh we have we have to stop traffic every time you put something out you know yeah. and i think that like uh, I th-
2: can, can I offer good, one, one thing? I know Phil's about has a point to make, but just mm-hmm. really quickly on what on what Kenny's saying, though, there's a deeper thing at play here that yeah. you know, being in the business, certainly I notice. And I don't in the same way that I think all of us acknowledge, yes, Oscars are important, but they're important in more of a business sense, I think, than like sure. this really merit, you know, true merit. Um there's this idea amongst directors, is specific to directors, this label of being kind of an iconoclast, a genius, if you will. Sure. That, frankly, is reserved for white dudes, you know, more so than anybody else. Soderbergh, who I respect and love. You can be a Soderbergh, you can be a Wes Anderson, you can be a Paul Thomas Anderson. At the age of 23, you make your first film, and the first thing people want to heap on you That's the new genius. That's the new auteur. That's the guy. You got to see everything he does. Even if he directs a crafts cheese commercial, it's going to be brilliant. Right. Spike is fighting against that thing of like, you almost have to, he he has to go above and beyond just to be considered a good director. You know, those people that'll be like, he's a genius. He's a visionary. Not the same people that are going to label, you know, the, the next wonder kind, so to speak. You know that same thing now that said do i feel as though spike is a genius in his filmmaking i do and i know many people that that feel that way but that perception is just it's a it's it's just a different litmus test that that he's held up to and and others like him are held up to um that soderbergh was not frankly coming out even with sex lies and videotape at the time and i would argue unquestionably between the two films do the right thing to me is the more important film. I think even Soderbergh would say that now.
3: Yeah. Well, 100%, 100% I I mean I don't I don't know anyone that could not watch this film and feel blown away by it quite frankly the, but i mean
0: the, the thing about sex lies and videotape is it is also best in breed like it's like sure. it is of, also that, of an, that ilk yeah. it's also an incredible film mm-hmm. but when you hold up like an incredibly made movie about like you know psychosexual dynamics against a film about you know inner city socio-politics and like the the systematic murder of black people and they're both like perfect yeah, I know which one's going to be the more important film. Yeah, I I, I love this. I what were you say? Oh, in 1989. There was a debate. In 1989, there was a debate. There and it was and it was a debate. I think for the reasons you're saying, and I, I think this goes back to a lot of what's happening because uh, a lot of what's happened forever and ever and ever. And like part of the reason why movies about Hollywood, which I love, always get that bump or movies about journalism always get that bump. It's because the people who are watching them can relate to what's happening there in a way they can't relate to other things. So movie critics, I think, Sex, Lies, of Videotapes is somewhat revolutionary because it's talking about things that a lot of us think about and talk about and think about, but don't really talk about and put out there. Sure. But it's not nearly as important <laughs> as, the other, as, as what's happening to do the right thing. So yeah, I think course. that, you know, I think sometimes reviewers get a little lost in this is important to me versus this is important objectively. So when
3: it's also I mean listen the 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 the, the other thing that needs to be said here is that it's absurd to put those five films you know, against each other, right? The idea that when Harry met Sally is in the same category as do right. the right thing is just is is absurd. I, Another I mean, best in breed, but, exactly. but again, but like, how do you finding your soulmate? kisser
0: at midnight is not quite <laughs> as important. So, you know,
3: but I, I this there's this one thing that I um, that I learned as I was doing a little bit of research on this that I love, which is that apparently Barack Obama at a fundraiser in New York City many years ago talked about how him and Michelle on their first date went to see do the right thing, but that they had originally planned to go see Driving Miss Daisy together. And Spike Lee joked later that they would not have still been dating had they <laughs> chose the latter film. <laughs> yeah. That was a that was a big subplot in Southside with you. Was it? It might have been. I we never should have been.
2: I don't know. It might be. I
3: have really no idea.
2: That would have been an awesome discussion. Uh,
3: <laughs>
2: but I mean certainly think about it. That it's it's what, what Kenny was just hidden on. It's like What's the one you're still talking about? What's the one that still spurs conversation? You know, Mm -hmm. if you're talking about, if this were in in a hypothetical world where there was an award for, you know, most impactful film, let's say, because that best film is just, that's tough. You know, there's so many different things, but most impactful film of that year, the one that you will not forget, the one that will... the one that, that always spurs conversation. Um, and again, like I said, I'm a big fan of Soderbergh. I watch almost everything he does all the way up to the Nick even recently and even the Magic, Magic mm-hmm. Mike film. So mm-hmm. I'm not by any means trying to you know, denigrate any of the other films. Of course not, yeah. um, But I just – I would hope if there is a thing we can learn from because I think obviously when you're talking about race and class and the pros and cons of, of capitalism, those, these are big things that are being discussed for hundreds of years. One small thing that I wish we could just get more right is in the moment, what are the pieces of art that right. really feel like really, truly are timeless, you know, when you watch them. And that to me is it's, you often know them when you see them, you know, those things that you feel like really just stick with you right away. Yep. You know, why can't we get
0: that right? I, and, you know, I think the, this ties into what's happening in this year. I know we had you on for when we had that summit with, uh, mm-hmm. with five writers of color and, mm-hmm. Right, you know, right in the wake of what, what was going on, but, but I don't know if we got here to discuss this or whatever, but the, the issue, the issue of like, should there be more diversity in behind the camera in Hollywood uh, seems like people presented as one of fairness, which it is, right? There is like the, the, the aspect of fairness, but a lot of the time, the movies that have the, the, the impact in the moment, the movies we're talking about that should feel, that, that we know will have the impact or are impactful, sure. these days are made by marginalized directors, whether it's women or people of right. color or, or, or people from other countries. And that, I think, is why artistically and holistically yeah. and culturally, it's important to open up. Like, selfishly, yeah. It's important that, that other people have a stake in this conversation. Yeah. Like, it just so happens that Spike Lee knocked it out of the park on, it was really his third movie, but, you know, Spike Lee knocked it out of the park in this. But there were obviously other people who have really interesting points of view and would have provided a, a more, you know, a more well-rounded and well-defined perspective and 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 aspect of this conversation that just weren't let in. So I think like, I I do, I think that the the conversation about diversity is framed wrong. It is actually better for all of us. Like it really is better for all of us. If you have a Chloe Zhao, if you have a, 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 Bon Jun Daddy says his
3: name
0: Dr Bon Jun Ho Bon Jun Ho if you have Jane Campion this year if you have all these people who are coming from it from a different perspective and interestingly enough Jane Campion and Catherine Bigelow often tell stories about men but yeah. you know I think that
3: that's really helpful too. Well I, I think it's helpful for a bunch of reasons the The first is that ultimately you know we work in an art form that's about the human condition, and that is that is a universal thing and I think that this idea of that that if you can't watch films made by people that don't have the exact existence that you have then i I don't know what to tell you like you you have to open up your mind you have to do a better job of of just of, of just welcoming other perspectives it's just baffling to me that that's still something that we struggle with as as a species and as an industry but Aaron I didn't mean to cut you uh, off. It's
2: just, no 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 it's it's um there's a point you're making Phil is, is it is is very pertinent I you know I remember in, at least in getting started in the entertainment business that was such a big hurdle to get over was this concern of am I ever going to really get the right about like my own perspective, I'm always going to have to like figure out a way to kind of like find parallels, you know, with Mm -hmm. the mainstream perspective. Will I ever get the right about characters that come, not literally just from where I'm from, but like anywhere near that that neighborhood? I do have hope that right now with the expansion of content and so much being out there that, you know, if entities want to compete with each other, they have to set themselves apart. So there's more of an opportunity now and still we have a long way to go but i do think there's more of an opportunity now to get those voices out there just from a business standpoint you know i would like to think that the 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 idea of fairness is is in play with a lot of this but my my cynical blackness tells me that it's never going to be really about fairness it'll be about the business side you know dollars and wanna, cents yeah. yeah if you want to find an audience that no one else has then look for the audience that's underserved instead of you're not not cynical.
0: You're not cynical enough. (laughs) (laughs) I know you're not cynical
3: enough because, because this is the,
0: I, that's that's, that's Kenny's
3: argument about most things.
0: (laughs) No, I, I I don't, you know, I don't like being a cynical person, but I I feel like this, I feel like the history is such where. Yeah. At some point it's not even about capitalism anymore. It is about patriarchy. It is about like, it is, a, yeah. it is about a white patriarchy that, sure. you know, allows for a Shonda Rhimes here and there and allows for a Kenya Barris here and there. But like, I see the way Kenya gets talked about. I see the way Shonda Rhimes gets talked about. Like I know, the, I know what's happened. I know. Like I see like, no, there's no master plan to sure. undercut these people. It's just that they're being talked about like they're difficult. They're being talked about like they're not that great, really. So I, like, I, I and they're both making tons of money for their networks or streaming services or whatever it is. So, like, not to get you I, down, I, I Aaron, but good luck. Here's the thing. What you,
2: what you have to understand is also I'm coming from the perspective where all of that is stuff I'm 1,000% aware. Of. yeah. yeah. What what I'm going off of with any of that, and that's where again Spike is a real is a trailblazer, is that, in order to make your way and actually to to blaze those new trails, there has to be a big part of you that just doesn't give a fuck, like yeah. who's going to get mm-hmm. this done, and you take those hits so mm-hmm. that afterwards there can be more Shondas, more Kingas, mm-hmm. more yeah. Sraes, you know, more Leanaways, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, Spike, an- had to an- another hits.
0: person who is getting you know taken down by the knees and also at all say all time there
2: has to be a big part of you if you are if you are not a a mainstream you know you know expectation so to speak that just Mm -hmm. can't give a fuck like there's the hit that you take for the team so to speak Mm -hmm. whereas okay if by getting things done and being successful people are going to see you a certain way there's a historical awareness that you have to always keep in mind which is at the end of the day this the important thing is that you get it done that's what Spike did, is by hook or by crook, yep. Yep. so to speak, he's got to get it done. And if he's labeled as the guy who took more time than the studio wanted, so what? Fuck it. I'm making do the right thing, you know?
3: Well, to that point, I think it's worth saying, and and I think a, a lovely way to wrap this up to some degree, is that the legacy of this movie, right, is is deep. This movie has, is, is unquestionably left an enormous footprint on this industry. Now, you know... Have we made enough progress? Absolutely not. But I don't think that you know when Spike Lee was perhaps joking at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival or whatever. He, like I think he still has to know that he moved the ball down the field, right? I think he has to know that he changed the industry and that many people have walked in his in his wake, um, which is a testament not just to this film, but it's a testament to his towering talent, to his you know to his abilities, um, to to him giving back to any number of communities in order to, you know, the other thing too, that we don't really talk about, we haven't really talked about, but like, you know, when the levees broke is an unbelievable documentary series. I mean, he's, he's, he's a tremendous filmmaker in every facet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and, and this film really just slayed me in that way. Yeah.
0: He's, he's, he's really, you know, put on a thousand pounds of fucking, you know, armor and, and went through the whole, the whole, every, every, every blocked door that he could go through. Yep. Um, absolutely. And now, you know, there does seem to be a generation happening right now of black filmmakers who are starting to be labeled auteurs or geniuses in the way that white filmmakers were, you know, have been the right. them memoriam. Like, sure. I believe, you know, Jordan Peele has Jordan that right Peele's, now. I yeah, think absolutely. Barry right. Jenkins has that right now. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think even interestingly enough, I think the reaction to Candyman, Nia Costa, was interesting, mm-hmm. too, because even though a lot of people felt like that film wasn't super successful yeah. everybody kind of felt like this was like the right way forward with this franchise and she did a great job like she was a really good filmmaker for the role and mm-hmm. i think that that to me it's like to, obviously candy man is a black horror film to some extent or like it is but like those are the films that black filmmakers weren't getting before right Correct. you know not even like the like the ryan coogler like i get ryan coogler getting Black Panther that makes a lot of sense to me based on Where he came from but like those like Hard genre films that like Are about blackness but also Like big crowd pleasing you know uh, Franchise things Like that's that's when you start to say Like this person has a vision We're going to give them this property and we're going to let them go And that's happening a lot more More now Than it was before so absolutely Um, I mean yes You attribute
2: all of that though that comes Back In 89 you know, like to to me, that even more so than the film, and the film being a tremendous achievement. We're all the children of Spike, you know, and the children of Gordon Parks before him, and the children mm-hmm. of Oscar Micheaux before that. But Spike was the one in '89 that really just set the whole thing ablaze. Where in a few short years, by the time we get to '92, there's three or four prominent African American mm-hmm. directors that hadn't happened before. That was Spike, you know. Yeah. So.
3: Yeah, there's no question that he that he was a trailblazer. Continues right. to be a trailblazer for the record as well. Like that. That's the other thing, you know, that we obviously talked about a little bit earlier. But like, he's still making great fucking movies. He's still making movies that are just that are powerful and funny and exciting and entertaining and thought provoking and challenging and, and you know, completely we, his. Just like they're just, could, uh, like just
0: you you put them on. You don't tell you you don't tell the person who they're uh, who, mm-hmm. who
3: directed it. You, I mean, Defy Bloods more than anything. Just felt so fucking spiked to me, but yeah. it just, yeah. it's just awesome. Um, so we should rate this, but like, if I'm being completely frank, I mean, I, it's a 98, it's a 99 across the board for me. Like, I, I can't, you know, we could we could talk about Martin Lawrence's speech impediment, which is you know a choice, um, but ultimately, I just really maybe more so than any film we've done, Kenny. And we've done a lot of movies, obviously in '89, we've done a lot of '99 movies. Uh, you know, we're now starting to do 2009. This movie is pretty much flawless. Like I, I, you know, you can put it under a microscope if you want, but I, I personally, you know, I think it's. I basically think it's perfect. But uh, what, what do you think, Aaron? No, nah, it's it's
2: one of the reasons why I do what I do now. Frankly, you know, I I think from the opening frame, he plays the lift every voice and sing is the very first thing we hear in with saxophone. That's the Negro National mm-hmm. Anthem that segs into a new national anthem with Fight the Power. Yeah, that's peaceful protests and militant protests in the first 30 seconds. And then we end the entire film with those two quotes from Martin Luther King and Malcolm X from, from beginning to the very end, you know, it's just, it is an iconic film. It is a great film. It is an impactful film. And by the way, it's also highly entertaining.
3: Right. And and there's one other thing that I want to say very quickly before Kenny, you do your rating, which is um, this movie doesn't feel like it's talking down to you. This isn't a movie that is trying to, you know, feed you your vegetables, for lack of a better way of putting it, right. This is a movie that wants to get on no. a on a human level and wants to really connect with you as a viewer, you know, on a human level, not on a I'm smarter Wait. than you level.
2: So one other thing I offer and before before I know Kenny jumps <laughs> in, if the cheap imitations that that did follow were some of the films that couldn't handle that in in the best way, you know, yep. what Spike does is he puts it out there. If you get it, you get it. You know, yep. even if you get three-fifths of what he was going for, you know, that's that's pretty good. And there, there's a lot. Every single scene, every single frame. I mean, there are little details that he has in there. The T-shirt that the kid's wearing when he gets knocked over by Izzy Davis... He's wearing a T-shirt caught with The, 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 butt, the with butt, the song that he used in a previous mm-hmm. film of his. And yeah. for the Spike Lee fans, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> By the way, that's like my five-year-old daughter's favorite song right now. She loves doing The Butt, and just wants to play that on loop. Uh, so you get a kick out of that stuff. First time I saw that, yeah. It's that crazy. said, a lot of the imitators did not have necessarily that depth of to touch, you know, right. where it would be, in a, a, the, the Waynes brothers ended up making fun of this in one of their films where it's, Every three seconds. Message. Message. No. <laughs> and, and Spike just lets it
0: play organically. 100 yeah. percent I Kenny, yeah, what about and you? I think I think I know the movies you're talking about too. Um, but uh, good movies, but not this. Yeah. You know, uh 99, that's not really a question. A question. Uh yeah. I you know, the thing I wanted to look up, I was just looking up what you're talking, is uh it's 128 on sight and sounds 250. Mm. Um That might not sound that high, but we haven't done a film that high on any of our podcasts. On the 99 podcast, on this podcast, or in 2009. This really is, I think, it really, you know, whether or not Spike has his place where he should in the pantheon of all-time directors, this film has its place. I think, uh, I know that it didn't make the original AFI list. There was outrage Mm -hmm. because Guess Who's Coming to Dinner did. Mm -hmm. Um, And it made the second one. It was in the '90s. I think if you do one today, it's in the '20s. Um, yeah. I really, I do. I think. I, agree. I think if you do one today, it's in the '20s. I think, if not higher, I think it's the highest. I think it's like the highest film from 1980 uh, to to now. I just it is an American classic, you sure. know.
3: It's untouchable. It's Anybody an
0: Amer- It's an American classic that is, uh, you know, very critical of america but it doesn't throw the idea of america away which is very generous of it um no there's
2: there's a again there's an embrace of this is what we are as opposed to let's burn it all down like, that's right you know what i mean that's yeah and that's why it was ironic at the time the response to it of being such you know a, a threat it's like no this is actually it's an embrace this is just showing an insight into what we're truly doing. Well, and it
3: quite, speaks to
2: what, it, it, what it's you showed, were saying it shows earlier. An insight.
0: That's what it is. It shows an insight into right. what's happening. And I think that, you know, in, and I, I try to think about this all the time when I think about how fucked up the world is. Uh, the most important thing you can do um, to move on is just accept things for, for what they are. And it, it, there's an acceptance in this movie Um, this is our situation and god knows if we know the right way out of it but just this is it this is what's happening and
3: and there's an empathy too i mean you said this earlier aaron uh which is you know we need to do a better job of reading things properly in the moment it feels like all you know so many great films are misread in the moment this is an example of people thinking that this is going to be some sort of a you know uh explosive thing that's gonna set off riots you know we just we have to do a better job of giving people more credit to some degree or another and also just embracing Big time. challenging movies and right. but anyway um Aaron I can't thank you enough I know you're a busy yeah. guy so we really do appreciate you coming on to talk about this film with us thank you so much always
2: Aaron. fun always fun enjoy talking with you guys and uh you know <laughs> eager to see where you go after it makes podcast like it just podcast like it